I know our players love playing in this neutral site game. It's just kind of different uh, in terms of the start of it, the fans, the the split crowd. Uh, it seems to be a momentum flow type game because you know team that has momentum is really at home for that moment, uh, and then it goes back and forth. And it's been a game of momentum swings. Hello and welcome. It's always college football. I'm your host, Greg McElroy. Thanks so much for being here today. Like We have a great, great weekend in store for you with the college football slate that we have to look forward to. We have some really compelling matchups, some games that will just jump off the page, obvious matchups that are exciting. Oregon's traveling to Utah. You got Florida and Georgia or Georgia and Florida, depending on what side of the rivalry you're on. I think there's a couple tricky ones for some teams that are ranked way up there in the top 10 that might have some difficult road trips. For instance, I think Oklahoma needs to be very careful with Kansas this weekend. A few other games that are significant as well, including a top 20 matchup between Duke and Louisville. We'll break those games down in their entirety. We'll also give you some nuggets for every single one of these games as far as which way you might want to place a wager. So if you listen closely, some of the trends I give you, I don't make picks against the spread on the show anymore. We did that quite a bit last year. But if you listen to the trends, you might be able to tell which way I'm leaning with some of those point spreads it should be an awesome game we so or awesome show and we so appreciate all of you to to all the many people that have helped us grow by leaps and bounds in the last year it's been amazing we so so appreciate you continue to like rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast whether it's on spotify apple podcast wherever you get your podcast just go ahead and subscribe you can also leave us a rating we've seen those rating numbers going up we also see the reviews thank you guys for those of you that have taken the time to write us a review it means a lot to us we're reading those. We're not reading our press clippings, but we're definitely acknowledging and appreciative of the support that you guys have shown us. And we also encourage you to subscribe to the ESPN College Football channel on YouTube. Hit that thumbs up in the video right below. Let's have some fun. All right, let's go through some of these games. We've got some great matchups that we want to break down in detail. I feel like we do our breakdowns better than anybody. So let's dive into some of these great games here in week nine of the college football season. This weekend preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. Let's start with number one Georgia taking on the Florida Gators. This game, of course, will be played in its traditional setting in Jacksonville, where Georgia is currently a two touchdown favorite, just north of that, 14 and a half. And the total sits at 49. This will be 3.30 Eastern time on CBS. Here's the one question I have starting off with the underdog Florida Gators. Is the last two weeks an appropriate reflection of who this offense might ultimately be? Now, I understand who it was against, against the likes of Vanderbilt and South Carolina, very different from what they're going to face on Saturday against the Georgia Bulldogs. But if you look at what they've done, I mean, the last two weeks, man, 76 points scored in their first four games against FBS competition. Well, the last couple games, it's been quite different. 79 points scored, and then, of course, nearly 500 yards of offense in the last two weeks. I think a big part of their success is that Graham Mertz is playing well. They obviously have been able to run the football a little better as well. And last week was some heroics. Of course, beating South Carolina was pretty remarkable. Back against the wall late, making the plays down the stretch, and stealing a victory there in Columbia, South Carolina. But here's one of the issues with Florida. While they have scored some points, they have manufactured some yards. Last couple, last outing against South Carolina, they allowed 27 quarterback pressures and four sacks, which Graham Mertz is 
uh, I think, a good player and has grown greatly. And for those that have jumped to conclusions about who he is and what he's capable of at Wisconsin, you need to watch the Florida version of Graham Mertz. He's actually quite a bit better. But I do think that he's not a guy that you want to rely on heavily when it comes to making the off-schedule play. That's not a winning recipe for them, especially against the Georgia Bulldogs. Florida has to be better on third downs in this game as well. Georgia is tremendous on third downs. That's to be expected. They almost always are. They allow just 24% conversions. That's the best in the FBS, number one. Third down defense in college football. Florida struggles against pretty much everybody. Uh, there's 33% third down conversions. That's the second worst number in the SEC. So they have to be good in that part of the game because if they're off schedule, if they're off schedule against Georgia, you get into third and longs, obvious passing situations. Georgia's going to sub in their speed rushers. They're going to sub in the guys that can really get out to the quarterback. And then it's going to be very difficult for Florida to convert in those situations. Another big question in this game. What does Georgia look like without Brock Bowers? Obviously, without Brock Bowers, got hurt against Vandy, had surgery on October 16th. He leads the team by more than 200 receiving yards and was fifth in the FBS, regardless of position, with 415 yards after the catch at the time of his injury. Fifth. He's a tight end, ladies and gentlemen. But to have over 400 yards after the catch... That's big play potential every single time. He's by far their best player. And while I love Carson Beck, and I think they have really good weapons, and we'll get to the weapons in just a minute, I still think Brock Bowers is a guy that when the game is on the line, just watch the Auburn game. <laughs> when the game is on the line, they're looking in the direction of one guy. And without Brock Bowers against Auburn, would they have been victorious? That's a legitimate question to ask. Well, now they're without Brock Bowers. How do they fill the void? Oscar Delp, is by far the most experienced tight end remaining on the roster. He'll probably get a decent amount of work, but he's really more of a pass catcher. Bowers is a little more versatile. Delp is kind of your traditional pass catching tight end. So they will miss Bowers, his physicality and willingness to block in the run game. And they'll also miss his yards after the catch potential because Delp has straight line speed, but he doesn't have the wiggle that Bowers has. As far as the rest of the offense, hopefully Lad McConkey's continuing to get a little bit more healthy, a little bit more comfortable. He's had the back injury all fall. Dominic Lovick is, I think, another guy in the slot, the transfer from Missouri that could elevate his play. And then Ra-Ra Thomas against Kentucky, he was terrific. And I do think Ra-Ra Thomas does have a really high ceiling. He's a big play threat every time he's on the field. So expect those three guys to take a step as far as the passing attack is concerned for Carson Beck. The other way that I think this is going to have to go. If Florida's going to pull the upset, they got to force a couple turnovers. And Carson Beck has been the tiniest bit susceptible the last couple of games. He's thrown a pick in each of the last three. And he'll have to clean that up moving forward. But if I'm Georgia, man, I just want to create some balance offensively. Because if you look at Georgia's run game for the better part of this season, yeah, they've had a bunch of injuries, right? We've documented that. Branson Robinson was lost during fall camp. Dejon Edwards has been by far their most consistent player, but he was out of the lineup the first couple of weeks. Kendall Milton's been hurt off and on throughout the first half of the season. Roderick Robinson hasn't played since week three. So depth's been a huge issue at running back. And while Edwards has been very, very effective, without him, it's kind of hard to figure where this rushing attack might be. And you got to be balanced offensively, not to the extent which it's 200 yards passing, 200 yards rushing and call it a day. Balance meaning in 2023, I mean, we're probably looking at 300 yards passing and 185 on the ground. That's 
decent balance. It's more about attempts than it is about actual yardage production. But in the event in which Edwards isn't effective, then you're looking at leaning on Dylan Bell, who's a kind of a wide receiver. That's who he is. And then Andrew Paul, who's a freshman, played very little uh, at this point. So they got to take some of the pressure off Carson Beck in this game because if you become one-dimensional against Florida, I think that can be a challenge. And then finally, will Ricky Pearsaw go off? Uh, Went off against South Carolina in the last couple games. Man, he has really, really been good. Didn't play great against Utah. Had a couple drops in that game. But since that point, he has by far been the most reliable weapon for the Gators to complement what is a decent one-two punch at running back. A couple trends in this game. Georgia is 1-4 and four against the spread in their last five games as a double-digit favorite. Georgia is 0-7-1 and one in their last eight games against unranked teams. And Florida is 4-1 and one against the spread in the last five games as a double-digit underdog. I'm not saying where I'd go, but if you listen to those trends, then it would indicate that Florida is going to keep this one close, and I think they will. I actually think Florida will hang in there a little bit, but Georgia's just too much. At the end of the day, I think Georgia gets away in the second half and ultimately beats the Gators in comfortable fashion. I'm not sure it's ever going to feel like Florida's going to win the game, but I would be surprised if they didn't have a good plan and they didn't battle from start to finish in this one. Let's go next to number eight, Oregon. At number 13, Utah. This will be Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time. College game day will be there. It should be an exciting and energetic atmosphere there in Salt Lake. They haven't been to Utah since 2016. So that should be pretty fun to to check that out. Oregon is a slight six and a half point favorite. 49 and a half is the total. And this game should be pretty interesting. Historically speaking, this will be the fifth consecutive ranked matchup between these two teams. Now, Oregon knocked off the Utes last year. That was in Eugene, but Oregon's looking for their first win in Salt Lake since 2016. And Utah has won 18 consecutive home games. This is the third longest active home winning streak in the FBS. That trails just Georgia, who's won 23 in a row, and Michigan, who's won 20 in a row. The last home loss for Utah came in the COVID year of 2020 when they lost to USC on November 21st. couple questions in this one. Can Bryson Barnes stay hot? Now, it, finally, after a cloud of uncertainty surrounding Utah's quarterback position, we finally have clarity. Cam Rising's out. He, of course, led Utah to back-to-back Pac-12 title games. He's shut down for the rest of the year, which means it's officially Bryson Barnes' show. He's coming off his best game of the year, counted for four touchdowns against SC, rushed for 50 yards in consecutive games, And if he does it for a third time, that'll be the longest streak of any quarterback in the last 10 seasons, which is pretty interesting. Bryson Barnes, I didn't realize, by the way, he had the wheels that he has. He can run. He can certainly run. The big question in this one, both teams want to run the football, and both teams are pretty good stopping the run. Which team's more efficient being able to churn out yards on the ground? Let's start with Oregon. They have a dynamic, a dynamic rushing attack. I think Bucky Irving is their best player. I said it on the broadcast last week. A lot of people kind of pushed back on that, saying, what about Bo Nix? What about Brandon Dorless? What about Troy Franklin? I think Bucky Irving's the most important player to the Oregon Ducks. You look at what he does after contact, it is truly ridiculous. Irving, hear this stat for a second. It's pretty remarkable. <laughs> it really is remarkable. Bucky Irving is allowing... Oh, is, excuse me, is 
accounting for more than four yards after contact per rush. So first defender touches him, he's gaining four yards. And couple this with the fact that he's spelled at times by Jordan James. Jordan James is actually averaging four and a half yards before contact per rush. So the offensive line is doing their job for sure, churning out big holes and giving them big opportunities. And then Irving, even after the contact, is just an absolute machine. Here's the thing about Utah, though. They're going up against one of the best rush defenses in America. Utah is number six in the FBS as far as defending the run, allowing just 78 yards per game. They have not allowed a 100-yard rusher this season. So it's good. Oregon's rushing attack against good. Utah's run defense. Let's go to the other side. Utah has also added a really impressive playmaker to the mix by moving Sione Vaki, who played safety for the first couple games and has been playing both positions sporadically throughout the season. Feels like he's going to be leaning maybe a little bit more into the running back role that he's assumed the last couple weeks. He had 158 yards and a couple scores. And you look at kind of what he's account- accounted for. Uh, 200 scrimmage yards, two touchdowns last week against SC. So in back-to-back weeks, 158 and two touchdowns two weeks ago, 200 plus, including 149 receiving and two touchdowns last week against SC. He's the first player with multiple receiving touchdowns and multiple rushing touchdowns and a defensive interception in a season since Muhammad Sanu did it back in 2010 for Rutgers. So he is a dynamic playmaker. You couple him with Jaquindon Jackson, who's a big physical runner. That's a really nice one-two punch. Very different from that of Bucky Irving and Jordan James, but very effective as well. So Sione Vaki has been a tremendous addition to the backfield there alongside Bryson Barnes to take some of the pressure off Jackson, who's had a solid year, but maybe not as spectacular a year as we had assumed. We already talked about Utah's run defense. Well, here's the Rucks, uh, the the Ducks run defense, if you will. They have allowed just 3.2 yards per carry and just three rushing scores. But at the same time, this is not really a defense that has been tested on the ground just yet. And that's not to say they won't live up to the billing. They might very well do so. But five of their six FBS opponents that they've played this year rank in the hundreds as far as rushing offense is concerned. This is by far their biggest test in this area. Texas Tech is the best team that Oregon's seen to this point. They average about 176 on the ground. The other five FBS programs that they have, like I referenced, they include Washington State, Colorado, and Hawaii. Well, how's this for rush offense rankings? Washington State's 127, Colorado's 128, and Hawaii's 133. There are 133 teams nationally. So they've played three of the bottom seven teams in the country as far as their run offense is concerned. So is Utah going to be able to run the football against a defense that has yet to be tested like this? That, I think, is a huge question. And finally, in a game in which both teams match up pretty well, I think both. I think Bo Nix is, is a better player than Bryson Barnes, but I'm starting to become more optimistic about Bryson Barnes, albeit maybe the best performance that he's had to date has come against an SC defense that struggled. But in this game that which might be low scoring, it might be decided reference last year, the game was 20 to 17. So it might be low scoring. It might be a physical game. If the game comes down to a field goal, how concerned should we be about what's going on 
with Camden Lewis. Now, think about what Camden Lewis has done to this point. The last time he was in Salt Lake, he went 0 for 2. Okay, this is the kicker for Oregon. Uh, he'd been one of the better stories in college football up until the last couple of weeks. Now, he lost his job in 2020, bounced back, had a couple of all-conference seasons. It's made 27 to 32 in both 2021 and 2022 combined. But made his first six this year. He obviously missed the kick against Washington, and that's kind of snowballed a little bit. He's now missed one kick in each of the past three games, including the one in Seattle. So I think that is something to be mindful of because it's not like any of the kicks have been just shanks. It's not like he has the yips, but they have been just a little bit off the mark. So in the event in which the game comes down to a game-winning field goal, do you trust Utah to get the job done? Their kicker nailed one last week put it through the uprights to give them the two-point victory? Or do you trust Camden Lewis? I Right now, based on what I've seen, I'm leaning in favor of Utah. I think it's going to be a heck of a game. A couple trends for you to take into account. A couple of teams that match up well as far as the trends are concerned. Utah is 16-8-2 against the spread in their last 26 games as a home underdog. Oregon is 5-1 and against the spread as a road favorite since 2022. What gives? Utah's been great as a home dog. Oregon's been great as a road favorite. I lean Oregon in this game. I think it'll be close. It's tough to pick against Utah. I'm not going to lie. It's really, really tough to pick against Utah. It's especially difficult to pick against Utah when they're in Salt Lake. But I just think Oregon has a little bit more firepower, and I just trust their offense just a little bit more. Expect it to be low scoring. I think it's going to be back and forth, and it will be one at the very end that I think will all be pumped to watch there at 3.30. Let's go to another game that's going to be 3.30 Eastern Time on ESPN. It's number 20 Duke at number 18 Louisville. Louisville is a slight four-point favorite. In this one, I'll be on the call alongside Sean McDonough and Molly McGrath. Looking forward to being a part of this one. couple questions for the Duke Blue Devils. The first question, is Riley Leonard available? Uh, he obviously got hurt initially against Notre Dame, uh, missed the NC State game, came back in pretty quick fashion to play against Florida State, but was lost last week when the Duke Blue Devils had a 20-17 to 17 lead when he exited the game. And then when he went out, all the wheels fell off. They were outscored 21-0 in the fourth quarter. And the yards gained by both teams were really even when Riley Leonard was in the game. But when Riley Leonard went out, the Seminoles outgained the Blue Devils by 147 yards in the final 22 minutes. So if he can't go, it'll be Henry Bielen, who's an athletic player, a little sporadic with his accuracy, but very athletic. And it's really going to be about running the football. Because if Riley Leonard can't go, the quick passing attack and the weapons on the perimeter, they'll be a factor, sure. But they're not going to be anywhere near the factor that if Riley Leonard is available. And I don't know. I really don't know if he's going to go. I've tried to read between the tea leaves all week. I think it's a toss-up, 50-50. If he can't go, though, it's Henry Bielen, and that obviously will make Duke's offense very one-dimensional. The good news is Duke has been very good running the football so far. So can they do it against a really good rush defense? More on Louisville's defense in a minute, but let's start with Duke. Jordan Waters is tied for the ACC lead with nine rushing touchdowns this year. And for those that want to get real deep in the weeds with me, I'm happy to take you there. The left side of the offensive line for Duke is excellent. Graham Barton at left tackle, Maurice McIntyre at left guard. I love watching these guys play. So if you guys want to tune into the broadcast at 3.30 Eastern time on ESPN, I promise you we're going to be talking about their left tackle and their left guard. If that's not for you, 
there will be plenty of other storylines that you can probably gravitate towards, but these guys are the real deal. The left side of the offensive line can single-handedly win this game for the Duke Blue Devils. They might have to, especially when you take into account how good Louisville's defense has been. They've held three straight opponents under 300 yards for the first time since 2015. They allow just 97 rushing yards a game. The last three weeks, they've actually been better than that too. Just 73 yards per game in the last three on the ground. And they forced eight turnovers against NC State and Notre Dame. Now, they did not force one against Pitt. And that ultimately was one of the deciding factors. Pitt returned a pick to the house. It wasn't great weather, but Pitt, kind of everything that could go wrong for Louisville that night did go wrong, including the injury to Jawar Jordan. And that takes us to our next point. Will Louisville have Jawar Jordan available? Uh, he They were out last week. They didn't play, but he missed most of the game against Pitt on October 14th. Now, hopefully he can get back. He played just 11 snaps against Pitt, had two carries for eight yards and a six-yard catch. As of Monday... They listed him as questionable. So I, I really don't know if he's going to be able to go or not go, what have you. But he was questionable as of Monday. It's a hamstring injury, so you know it's kind of dependent on the guy. If he can't go, though, it's going to be a significant loss. They do have a capable one-two, pin, one-two punch behind him. But Jawar Jordan is the home run hitter that they have to have, I think, if this Louisville offense is going to reach its ceiling. In the event in which he can't go... Expect Jack Plummer to try to step up at quarterback. This guy's a terrific deep ball thrower. And they have really capable weapons on the perimeter. They love to spread the ball around. 16 different players have caught passes and 11 players have scored touchdowns. So they spread the ball around to a bunch of different guys. I think Coach Brom does a really good job of getting everyone involved. But it's very clear that in gotta-have-it situations, they're looking in the direction of Jamari Thrash. He had his second 100-yard receiving performance of the season against Pitt, and he was targeted a season-high 18 times in that game. Nine catches on the 18 targets. So it clearly is starting to feel like if it's a gotta-have-it scenario and you're losing and it becomes a throw-first situation, you can expect a big outing from Jamari Thrash. Louisville's been outstanding at home this year. They've been really explosive, nearly 48 points a game at home. They average 534 yards at home and nearly eight yards of play. So the home field might be a factor in this one as well, but Duke's defense will be up to the test. This is a really, really stout group along the defensive line. I think they're very, very smart in the back end. They do a lot of different coverages. They do a lot of different disguises, and it's difficult as a quarterback to play against a group that is this sound. They don't give you any freebies. You have to earn them. It should be an awesome game. I can't wait to be there. And a trend just to keep in mind, Duke is 3-9 and nine against the spread in their last 12 as a road underdog. But as you guys know, Duke is different this year than what they've been in the past. Have you ever dreamed of hitting the road in your very own customized Mercedes-Benz Sprinter? Follow college football all season long by hitting all the biggest games in college football's most celebrated stadiums. At ESPN, we dreamed that dream, and with the help of Mercedes-Benz, we made it happen. This year, our very own Jen Latta, has teamed up with Mercedes-Benz designers to create a road-ready, fully functional, state-of-the-art podcast studio on wheels. The ride is pure Mercedes-Benz with all-wheel drive and the latest driver assistance, safety, and tech. The podcast studio must be seen and heard to be believed. A spacious and chill conversation space with mics, 
camera, and mixing board to capture the action. On board, Jen Latta will be interviewing some of the biggest names in college football. All points to Mercedes-Benz for always bringing some extra. Out back of the Sprinter, they're innovating. Pushing the science of the tailgate, complete with grill, cooler, TV monitors, and more. This is hashtag van life meets the fan life. To get an inside look to this one-of-a-kind, blow-your-mind collaboration came together, visit mbvans.com slash Sprinter Labs. The Mercedes-Benz ESPN College Football Podcast Sprinter coming soon to a game near you. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Number six, Oklahoma travels to Lawrence, Kansas. Game will be Saturday, noon Eastern time, 11 local on Fox. Kansas has lost 19 consecutive games against AP top 10 teams. And the last time they beat a team that was ranked in the AP top 10 was the 2007 season, the 2008 Orange Bowl. So it's been a while, 25 consecutive home games against AP top 10 teams in which they've lost. The last time they won a home game against an uh, a AP top 10 team was in 1984. So I, I wasn't born, but it was against number two, Oklahoma. So maybe that's a good omen, if you will. Here's the thing I'll say about Oklahoma. I do think last week, and the game against UCF, granted, not a great performance by any stretch, but I do think it was a good indicator of how this week might go. There were a lot of teachable moments in that game for the Sooners, especially on the defensive side of the football. And I think it was a really good opponent to kind of have a wake-up call against because I think Kansas is just a better version of UCF in the way they run their offense. There's a lot of similarities with how Gus Malzahn puts his offense together and how Andy Kotelnicki, the OC for Kansas, how he runs his offense. A lot of eye violations that can be created. You have some triple option principles. You have a really dynamic quarterback with the ball in his hands. So that's just something to kind of keep in mind. And I think Venables talked about it openly this week is that they are really good as far as deception plays. Deception plays with the run. Deception plays with the pass. I don't think Kansas is quite as tricky as UCF, as far as, you know, double passes and things like that. But they'll have a couple things up their sleeve, and there'll be plenty of things for Oklahoma defenders to potentially overreact to, which could cause a big play. There's some pre-snap motion. There's some other wrinkles. So there will be some confusion for Venable's group for sure. That's just what Kansas does, and they're very, very good at it. But we have to acknowledge just how much better Oklahoma is defensively in year number two under Brent Venables. We haven't done this in a couple of weeks. We've talked about it and we've been proud of the growth that's been showed. But just to kind of highlight just how much better they are, it's almost astronomical with some of the leaps that they've made. All right. From year one to year two, just hear me out for a moment. They have gone from 98th, 9-8 to 13th in scoring defense. They have gone from 105th to 33rd in rushing defense. They have gone from 87th to 6th in third down defense and 104th 
to fifth in red zone touchdown defense. They also have the second best turnover margin. So if you actually look at just how much they've grown, it's really remarkable. But this is a difficult offense to account for. We haven't officially heard whether or not it's going to be Jason Bean or Jalen Daniels. I'm going to operate under the assumption it's Jason Bean. I think it's highly likely that he's the guy. Jalen Daniels has been out with back spasms since the Texas game. I don't expect him back at least this week, and I don't know if I really expect him back at any point down the stretch. Jason Bean is a high-powered, high-octane runner, and this guy can really get out, really, really get out and go. And for your defense to slow him down, your linebackers have to be awesome. So I think one of the probably one of my favorite matchups to watch in this game is Danny Stutzman, who's been really good. I mean, playing at an extremely high level all season long for the Sooners in the middle of that defense. And we know that Brent Venables puts a lot on his off-the-ball linebackers, and Danny Stutzman's been up to the task of playing at a high level. But the other guy I want to add to this equation, because I think Bean is so fast, we're talking like 10-200, track star speed. You got to have Jaron Kanick probably play at a high level as well, because I don't know if Stutzman against Bean in a one-on-one situation is a matchup that I want if I'm Oklahoma. I think Stutzman's really good, but I think Bean has too much open field speed for him to contain him by himself. So that means Kanick is going to have to play at a really high level. I think if you look at him just productivity-wise, he's been really good so far, a little overshadowed from what Stutzman does, but that one-two punch at linebacker up against Jason Bean in this rushing attack will be significant. The other question I have is, can Kansas run the ball between the tackles? Now, UCF came into last week's game as one of the best rushing teams in America, and the defensive line completely dominated there between the tackles. Now, Kansas, I don't know if they're going to force their hand up the middle as much. I think they're more of a perimeter run team. They have great speed. They want to use that speed in the open field. I don't anticipate as much challenging right downhill. I think a little bit more will be on the edges, which will put an additional stress on the Oklahoma defense. I mean, UCF just flat out couldn't do it. And the defensive tackles for Oklahoma, that might be the most improved group on their team with how they've played to this point. The other thing I want to see from Oklahoma, can they play a little ball control? Just a little bit, right? We know what Jeff Levy's been. We know what this offense can do. But I do think at some point down the stretch, it's going to be really helpful for the run game to get going. Now, it's been documented that that's been a struggle to this point. Like We know that. But against UCF, they might have found something there in the fourth quarter by getting Gavin Sawchuk and Marcus Major in there, get a little bit of a rhythm going. Yet in Tawi Walker, who might be back this week, he had an in, he was in, you know, in the doghouse for a week last week. He's hopefully back. If they can establish a bit of a run game, I think that would really help out in shrinking the game a little bit, helping their defense a little bit, and playing some complimentary football. They have to be able to run the ball against Kansas. If you look at Kansas right now, they're 95th in rushing yards allowed and 104th nationally in yards allowed per carry. Their best attribute is in the back end. Kansas' secondary is a high-level college secondary. Now, they have a couple guys that will play on Sundays, but it's not like across the board. It's, you know, Daryl Revis and Antonio Cromartie with, with you know, uh, Earl Thomas in the back end. Like, they're they're really good in the secondary, though, from a college standpoint. So, in the event in which Nick Anderson can't get going, can their run game bail them out a little bit and keep them moving the chains in a methodical manner? A couple trends to consider in this game. Kansas is 313-1 against the spread since a, following a bye week since 2009. Kansas is also 2-10 and and 2 against the spread in their last 14 games against ranked teams. I, however, am going to kind of disregard the trends here. I think Oklahoma needs to be very, very careful. 
I think they need to be very, very careful. This is a Kansas team that is obviously coming off the bye, but we all know what lies next week for the Sooners. That's the game at Bedlam. And counterpoint, we're not going to break this game down in its entirety, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Oklahoma State needs to be careful too. Because both teams have had that one circled for a little while. So to have a look-ahead scenario would not be out of the realm of possibility. So be careful. I think Oklahoma wins, but I think it'll be close. I think it could come down to the wire. What should be a pretty high-scoring and entertaining affair. Let's go to number 21, Tennessee, traveling to Kentucky. This will be Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. Two teams really needing to get up off the mat. Now, Kentucky's coming off an open week. They had the bye last week. And Tennessee, of course, blew the 13-point lead at halftime and was outscored by Alabama 27-zip in the second half. Now, Kentucky, uh, they entered the bye week coming off of a two-game losing streak. They lost convincingly to Georgia on October 7th. And they didn't look good in the home loss to Missouri. Just a lot of mistakes made in that game that led to them losing the game convincingly. Now, Tennessee has to figure some things out on the road. This has been a challenge. This game's in Neyland. It's a very easy one for me to pick. I'm taking the Vols. But the fact that it's in Lexington against a Kentucky team that feels desperate and has had some time to prepare, I think Kentucky's going to give them all they want. And Tennessee, their road woes have been something of note. Second consecutive road game for a Tennessee program that has struggled away from Neyland. They have dropped both of their road games this year and four of the last five SEC road games dating back to last season. So they have to fit. And their one win, by the way, at Vanderbilt. So we all know that while, yes, a road environment technically by the letter of the law, there was more orange than there was black and gold in the stadium that night in November in Nashville. So you got to mind, be mindful of that for sure. The other question about this one, can Tennessee run the ball efficiently? They are the best in the SEC when it comes to running the football. Seventh in college football with 217 rushing yards per game. Kentucky, meanwhile, second in the SEC and 13th in the FBS in rush defense. So good run game against good rush defense. 96 yards a game given up for Kentucky. 217 gained by Tennessee runners over the course of this year. The problem is, is that When you look at Kentucky, the way you get your yards against them, use the Georgia game as an example. That was the best example. Naturally, Carson Beck came out throwing it, and they did not have an answer in the back end. But Tennessee finds success when they can run the football. We talked about this stat last week. Falls are 20-2 and under Josh Heupel when they rush for at least 175 yards. They are 3-8 and when they don't hit that mark. They didn't hit it last week, and as a result, they lost the game to the Crimson Tide. The other thing that Tennessee has to do a better job of is they're going to be an aggressive group. That's what they've been. They've been that way for as long as I can remember. And last year, you look at what they did in fourth down situations. They were great, big time. I think they converted nearly two-thirds of the time on fourth down last year. That has not been the case. So far this season, they are just three of 13 on fourth downs. That is 129th out of 133 teams. Here's the even more significant issue. They're one of five on fourth and one, including two that they were unsuccessful on last year, last week, excuse me, in Tuscaloosa. So in short yardage, fourth down situations to be one of five with a quarterback that's 240 pounds, that's troubling and something they need to figure out too, especially against a group that is pretty dang stout against the run. The reason why I don't love Kentucky in this game is that I don't at the moment trust Devin Leary to play efficient football. He's completed just 55% of his passes in all four games against SEC competition. The last SEC quarterback to complete less than 55% of their passes in five straight games was a while ago. 
So just take into account, man, this has been a pretty bit of a pretty rough stretch for Devin Leary as far as his efficiency numbers are concerned. He also hasn't hit 130 yards in any of the last three games. And we know Tennessee's really good against the run. Plus the fact that he hasn't created big plays. He hasn't completed a high percentage of his passes. And to make things even worse, he's had seven interceptions this season. Devin Leary's got to play his best game of the season to date if they are going to beat the Tennessee Volunteers. And the other thing for Kentucky, can they just play clean football and get the rushing attack going? Now, Ray Davis is having a massive year. Leads the SEC in rushing yards per game, uh, all-purpose yards per game, and touchdowns scored. So he's doing everything that he can possibly do to position the Wildcats to be elite down the stretch, but he can't do it by himself. They have not been good. They have not been good as far as turnovers, and they have not been good as far as complementing that rush defense in any stretch of the imagination. You're going against a defense in Tennessee that's really, really good. Uh, no one's been able to get to 200 rushing yards on the Vols this year. Just 110 yards given up per game. Combine that with some turnover issues. You had three against Missouri multiple in three of the last five games. There's no margin for error for the Kentucky Wildcats in this matchup. A couple trends to consider. Kentucky is 0-6-1 against the spread following a bye since 2017, and Tennessee is 9-1 against the spread in their last 10 games following a loss. I like Tennessee to get the job done on the road to alleviate some of the concerns that we've seen from that group on the road and to finally knock off a team that's really, really good away from their home venue. Let's go to number three, Ohio State. They're a 14-point favorite on the road at Wisconsin. The Badgers trying to get things going a little bit after what was a pretty nice finish to the game last week, albeit the first three quarters left a little to be desired. It's going to be 7.30 Eastern time on NBC. Wisconsin, just to take into account where this program is at right now, Wisconsin has been favored in 45 straight home games entering this week. That's tied with Oklahoma for the longest active streak in the FBS. The last time Wisconsin was a home dog was actually the last time they hosted Ohio State. That was back in 2016. Currently, couple touchdown underdog. That's not going to flip come game time. This is the largest home underdog role for Wisconsin since 1997. They were also a 14.5 point dog that day. They lost to number one Michigan by 10. So they did cover. So if the line moves even further in favor of Ohio State, then it could potentially become the biggest underdog role for Wisconsin since 1991. That was against number 17, Iowa. They lost by four as an 18-point dog. Now, Luke Fickle, a lot's been made of his allegiances to Ohio State, and he's trying to downplay that. Of course, he spent a lot of time at Ohio State, was the interim coach in 2011. But I think he kind of broke through last week as far as reaching his team. They're starting to learn how to finish. And that was what he had talked about all throughout the offseason. So he talked about all the way through the first half of the season. And then look at what the program had done in one possession games prior to his arrival. And including the first half of this season, they were one in six in the last two years in one possession games. Well, they figured out a way to get it done. They're down 21-7, entering the final game, final quarter against Illinois. They scored 18 unanswered with the three-yard pass to Braden Locke to uh, Rucci to get the largest comeback in Big Ten play since 2018. A couple of questions in this one. Can Braylon Allen get things going on the ground? He's been awesome, but it's really about the century mark. In the four games in which he's gone over 100, Wisconsin's 4-0. and In the 19 career games he's gone over 100, they've been really, really good. 
<laughs> he's got the most 100-yard games in the FBS since 21. Now, they're running the ball pretty effectively. 180 yards per game on the ground. This is third best mark in the Big Ten. They've really struggled complementing that run game with the passing game that was supposed to be invigorated with the addition of Phil Longo from North Carolina. He's the OC. To make things worse, Tanner Mordecai was out with a broken hand. That means Braden Locke has had to step in, but it's been really tough. It's really tough. When you look at what they have to go against this week, what could Penn State do pretty well prior to last week? They could run the football. They have two great running backs, Penn State does, and they are counted for just 49 yards on 26 attempts. Ohio State is obviously going to sell out completely against this Wisconsin rushing attack and force the passing game to beat them. And I'll tell you this, I don't think Wisconsin can beat Ohio State throwing the football. I mean, they were supposed to, you know, come in and 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 bring this offense into the 21st century and to kind of complement that power run game. And it's been really bad up to this point. Relatively speaking, they're 83rd in passing yards per game. And they're throwing the ball 10 times or 10 times more, not 10x, but 10 times, 10 attempts more per game than they did last year. So the passing game has yet to take off. And part of the reason why is they haven't been able to separate on the perimeter. That's a big question. Can they create separation against Ohio State's DBs? Because when I watched the Penn State game last week, I know Penn State's wideouts aren't great, but they weren't able to consistently separate at all. So Drew Aller had to force things into some tight windows and was pretty inaccurate on a few of those tight window throws. Well, that's been a huge issue so far this year for Wisconsin, creating separation and to make sure that their quarterback, whether it's Locke or Mordecai before him, has a little bit of a window and a margin for error when delivering the football. Now, I'm optimistic with what I've seen from Will Pauling in the slot. Maybe that will eliminate some of the headaches. Uh, he's been solid, and over the last three weeks, he's really come into his own, averaging 10 yards per catch and 23 catches in the last three weeks. So he's doing some nice things, but I don't know, man. That's going to be a tall task to be able to create consistent separation against Ohio State. And how many points does Ohio State need to score to win the game? Uh, that's, I think, a big question mark. And can Wisconsin slow down Marvin Harrison? I mean, he has been terrific the last three weeks. Three consecutive games over 100 yards and a receiving touchdown. And another game like that, which I think is highly likely and probably probable, it would be the second longest streak in the Big Ten in the last 15 years. Now, in 2019, David Bell did it. He did it in five straight games. And then 2013, Steve Hull did it in four straight games. So what does this really come down to? How can Wisconsin win the game? If Ohio State plays a clean game, which they have up to this point, they'll be fine. They'll win the game. But if Ohio State turns it over and can't, for whatever reason, contain Wisconsin's run game, then it could be a little bit of a difficult spot. Now, all signs point to Travian Henderson being back. All signs point to Emeka Buka being back. So I just don't think there's enough for Wisconsin offensively to be able to match Ohio State point for point. It might only take 17 to win this one, and that might, might be all Ohio State needs because so far their defense allowed 70 points through seven games. It's a pretty dang good start. A couple trends to take into account. Six of Ohio State's seven games have gone under the total this year, and Wisconsin is 0-4 against the spread with teams with winning records in 2023. I like Ohio State to win this game, but it does feel like an awful lot of points. I think in a low-scoring affair, in a game that I think might get to the low 40s, I have a difficult time thinking that they can't keep it within the two-touchdown margin that Vegas has lined up for. Mmm, you smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper. 
which can only mean one thing. It's college football season. So block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper from the mini fridge because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws, and Fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West Coast games. That's right. The fans are back, and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes, more heartbreak, more layers of face paint. Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition there is, Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Couple more games we want to get to for sure. Number four, Florida State traveling to Wake Forest Saturday noon Eastern on ABC. Just an interesting nugget here. Not saying that there's like a whole lot that you need to be concerned about. We know that Florida State's different this year. At least we've acknowledged that. I think a lot of other people are starting to get on board with that for sure. I mean, Florida State's the real deal. They're legit. Uh, the problem is Wake Forest has won the last three games against Florida State. That's the longest active win streak against Florida State in the FBS. So just something to keep in mind when taking this game into account. Florida State's a healthy favorite and should be. And Wake Forest is not what they were. Without Sam Hartman, they're just not the same. But still an offense that has given Florida State some fits the last couple of years. So just be careful if you are the Florida State Seminoles. Number five, Washington is at Stanford's. It'll be Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern time. Washington, a healthy 26.5 point favorite. The total sits at 59.5. Stanford, in a wild stat as I was going through the gauntlet here, they are 5-3 and three against AP top five opponents since 2012. That's the second best record by any FBS team against top five foes over that time. The only one with a better record would be Alabama. Alabama's 19-6. and six. Stanford is 5-3. and three. And one thing else to also take into account, this is a pretty good quarterback matchup. We all know about Michael Penix. Everybody knows about Michael Penix and the amount of weapons and the amount of versatility that that offense has and how difficult they are to defend. What you might not know, though, is that Ashton Daniels has thrown for 664 yards over the last two weeks. That's the second most in the FBS over that time since October 10th. Uh, the only guy that has more is Hawaii's Braden Shager. Uh, Shager, excuse me. Uh, Daniels, the first Stanford quarterback to have at least 45 passing attempts in back to back games as well. So they are starting to find themselves a little bit of an identity out there. And remember, one thing we've talked about in the past with Washington is that their pass rush isn't great and their secondary. I think they're improved from where they were last year, but that is an area that I would be just the tiniest bit concerned. I think Washington will win the game. I think they'll win the game comfortably, but don't be surprised if Stanford scores some points along the way. Indiana is at number 10 Penn State, 32-point spread. This game Saturday, noon Eastern time. Just going to give you some trends here. Not a whole lot to see. I'm not sure Indiana is going to be able to do much offensively whatsoever because Penn State is 6-0 against the spread as a favorite this year. They're 11-0-1 against the spread as a favorite dating back to last season. And Indiana just 2-9 against the spread against ranked teams since 2021. I think James Franklin is going to be ticked off, and I think he's going to probably try to do everything he can to beat Indiana. Because remember, back in 2020, Indiana beat Penn State in what was dramatic fashion. Michael Penix was the hero in that game as the quarterback for Indiana. And I don't think James Franklin's forgotten that one. 
Just saying. I think that one's going to be one-sided from the very beginning. BYU is at number seven, Texas. This game right now is going to be a 17.5-point favorite or so uh, in favor of the Longhorns. It'll be Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time on ABC. I found this nugget kind of interesting. BYU actually leads the all-time series against Texas 4-1. to 4-1. to one. BYU an 80% winning clip against the Longhorns. It's the best record by any program against the Longhorns in which they've played only five games. Five games or more, excuse me. So BYU's traditionally had some success. Granted, a little different Texas team, a little different BYU team, different eras. So dif- difficult to necessarily connect the dots, but thought you might find that interesting. The big storyline around this one is that Malik Murphy will be likely getting his first start. He's going to fill in for Quinn Ewers. They haven't totally announced it, but I'm... Come on, like, like we know it's going to be Malik Murphy. He won the backup job in the spring game where he was very efficient in that position. 9 of 13 for 165 and a touchdown. Now, we don't want to draw too many conclusions from spring game performances. We've fallen victim to that uh, for a while, uh, I might add. So let's not get too far ahead of our skis and give the guy Eisen Trophy just yet. But he is very capable, very physically gifted player. And a guy that was listening to an awful lot of overtures after that spring game performance from other programs, people say, hey, come be our starter. Come be our starter. Well, Steve Sarkeesian locked him down, meaning that Steve Sarkeesian clearly thinks very highly of this young man. And I would think that he's probably going to be in a pretty dang good spot going into this game because it's really more about the run game for Texas in this one. I mean, Jonathan Brooks is averaging 142 scrimmage yards per game this year. That's the fourth most in the FBS. He also has added... 12 or uh, a bunch of receptions in the Big 12, 18 receptions. That's the second most among Big 12 running backs. So he's done a really good job kind of shouldering the load since being thrust into the starting lineup there in week three. He's taken the reins and has been one of the best backs in college football since that point. The other way that you can kind of make a young quarterback uncomfortable is by creating some pressure. BYU hasn't been able to generate hardly any this year. They have just seven sacks this season. That's the second fewest in the FBS. And four of those sacks came against Arkansas, which is allowed sacks against everybody. So keep in mind, if BYU can't get home and make Murphy uncomfortable, it might be very difficult, but kind of wild to look at the dichotomy of how things have gone for BYU the last couple weeks. This is the third consecutive game that BYU will face a freshman backup quarterback making their first career start. Last week, they played against Texas Tech's Jake Strong, who was the third-string quarterback starting the season. Uh, He started in place of Baron Morton, who's injured his AC joint. And then two weeks ago, they played against TCU. That was when Josh Hoover was thrust in the starting lineup for injured starter Chandler Morris. And the two quarterbacks had very different performances against the Cougs. Hoover threw for TCU for uh, for 439 yards. And Strong finished with three interceptions, took a big L. So could go one or two ways, but I would think that Texas will be just fine in the absence of Quinn Ewers. A couple trends to take into account in this one. BYU has not been a double-digit underdog since 2018. It's pretty wild when you think about it. They played a really tough schedule over the last handful of years. They have not been this big of a dog in over five years. That was against Utah, at Utah, where they were an 11-point dog. The last time they closed as a larger than 17.5-point favorite was at Washington. That was also in 2018. But Texas is 1-3 against the spread against unranked teams this season. So maybe Texas lets them hang around for a little bit. I think BYU is actually very talented. 
So I think it might be a little tricky early on, but Texas will just have too much in the second half of that football game and they'll win the game comfortably. Pitt travels to South Bend. Number 14, Irish, will be on the field at 3.30 Eastern time on NBC. A couple things of note here. Pitt's not very good. They did, however, beat Louisville just a couple weeks ago. Kind of lightning in a bottle type of game where they turned over Louisville a couple times. They made a couple big plays, and it was all she wrote. But Pitt has won three of their last four games against AP-ranked opponents. Pretty wild. They have not won four out of five since 1981-82. So it's been 40 years since they've won four out of five, but they have, at the moment, won three out of four against AP-ranked opponents. But a couple trends to account for in this one. Pitt is 0-5-1 against the spread in the last six games as a road underdog, and Notre Dame is 13-5-1 against the spread following a bye week since 2008. I like Notre Dame to take care of business in that one, but 18 feels like a few too many against the Pitt Panthers that are pretty solid against the run. Couple other games just take note of impactful as far as conference championship races are concerned and some storylines surrounding several of these. Keep an eye on Tulsa at SMU. SMU's five and two. We've talked a little bit about Tulane and the possibility of Tulane going to a New Year's Six Bowl game. Well, Tulane, Tulane needs SMU to keep winning because if they play them in the AAC championship, that will obviously strengthen their resume. Also need to keep an eye on Clemson traveling to NC State. One of these two teams is going to be four and four. I don't think either one of us would have expected the loser of this one to be sitting at 500 eight games into the season. Clemson's moved the ball well this year. They really have. Like The offense between the 20s has been very, very good. Problem is they can't score in the red zone. They've been very inconsistent. They've reached the red zone 38 times. It's actually the most red zone penetrations in the ACC, but they've scored on just 68% of those red zone penetrations. That's the worst rate in the ACC. They've also turned the ball over three times inside their opponent's own 10, inside their opponent's 10 yard line. Only two teams in the FBS have more turnovers inside the 10, 10 yard line. That'd be UCLA and Louisiana. And Clemson's lost 10 fumbles this year. That's the most in the FBS. So Clemson, they got to quit being their own worst enemy because if they do, that's a good football team. I really believe that. A record might not reflect that, but I think they're pretty good. It just hasn't been good enough. They've made way too many catastrophic mistakes at this point of the season to become a contender. Colorado travels to number 23 UCLA. They're a heavy underdog. It'll be Saturday, 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. The big thing about this one is Shador Sanders has been pressured on 139 dropbacks this season. That's the most by any FBS quarterback through seven games in the last five years. So historically bad as far as pressure rate is concerned, this is not the get-right recipe that you're looking for. UCLA's defense has 135 quarterback pressures this season. That's the most by an FBS team through seven games over the last five years. So historically good as far as pressures being created for UCLA's defense, historically bad for pressures being avoided by Colorado's offense. That's not a good recipe. I like UCLA to win this game big. They've covered four consecutive games. It's a favorite, and Colorado is now 1-7-1 against the spread on the road since last season. This thing should get sideways in favor of the Bruins. I also want to give you a couple giant killers because we've done this each of the last few weeks, and they've been close in some cases. There have been some outright upsets, but these are the teams that I think need to be real careful this weekend. Not because I think they'll lose. I just think it might be uncomfortable. USC, they're every week put them on this list because nothing feels comfortable for the Trojans right now. They're at 11 point favorite at Cal and Cal's covered for their last five against SC and is 12 and five against the spread as a home underdog since 2017. 
Well, SC is an 11-point favorite. I think Cal will keep it close. They can run the football. They got a really good back. They got a couple dynamic weapons. I wouldn't be surprised if this game is in doubt at the end of the fourth quarter. Kansas hosting Oklahoma. Since he heads to Stillwater, since he's not very good, Kansas is. So I think it's a very dangerous game with Bedlam lying in the weeds next week. Both teams are very much looking forward to that game. So I think Oklahoma State, which has had a resurgence with their run game, they need to be careful against Cincinnati. I think they'll be okay. Kansas, of course, very dangerous, high-scoring, potent offensive attack against Oklahoma. Oklahoma's on the road. It's 11 a.m. start. A lot of things in play there for the Sooners. So both those two teams involved in Bedlam next week, I think, need to be a little bit careful heading into this matchup this weekend. Maryland needs to be real careful with Northwestern. Northwestern's not good. They're not. But Maryland's just a slight favorite. Just a 13 and a half point favorite. And when I look at that line, I'm like, man, I don't know. That 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 seems like Maryland for sure, right? Like, oh my gosh, I got to take Maryland. I got to take Maryland. Well, that's what Vegas wants you to do. <laughs> so I just think this could be a little bit of a sleepy spot for Maryland. I think Talia has been great this year, but this, for whatever reason, just feels like a difficult road test. We've seen good teams go to Northwestern in the past and just be a little flat offensively. So hopefully Maryland doesn't have that issue and they handle their business when they go to Evanston. And then finally, we already kind of hit it already. Stanford, their passing attack's gotten going quite a bit. Now, will they be able to stop Washington? I don't think so. But I do think they can score against Washington's defense. Can they score enough? No. But could they maybe make it uncomfortable for two, two and a half quarters? Perhaps. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We really appreciate you guys for doing that. Hit that thumbs up button right below on the ESPN YouTube page. Subscribe to the ESPN College Football page so you can continue to dive in to some of our content on a weekly basis. We are so looking forward to this weekend. It's the last Saturday before Halloween. It's the last Saturday before the college football rankings are released. So we have a lot to look forward to and to see how these teams kind of position themselves for the stretch run that will take place in November. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, and Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.